Hello, everybody. This is Johnny Morrison, and I'm here to tell you that season three of The People's Theology is on its way. Look for the first episode at the end of January. And to get ready for the launch of season three of TPT, we bring you today a conversation that happened live with author, lawyer, friend, elder at Missio, Luke Goodrich, on his new book, Free to Believe. We had this conversation at the beginning of January, so you'll hear some references to buying Christmas gifts. But the conversation is about his brand new book, which is about religious freedom and the role of the church in conversations around religious freedom. So there's these big issues, these big cases that we debate about and argue about and that have a lot of cultural weight. And then there's also just this conversation about how does the gospel move us and shape us. And the conversation was so helpful and enjoyable that we wanted to make it available to everyone. So here to start out and get us ready for season three is a conversation with Luke Goodrich. And then look for episode one, season three, at the end of this month. So, Luke, the first question I was thinking about comes down to the role of the church in these kinds of conversations, these kinds of issues. And, and maybe it's even a, a broader conversation, but I think a lot of us in that pilgrim martyr perspective go back and forth in terms of how do we engage culture? What is the way for the church to be involved in public square? Like I have a soft spot for the Anabaptists, and they would say that you actually are removed from all the public square. So how, would you help us think about what the church's role in the public square is generally, and then maybe even more specifically in terms of like this system? Yeah, great question. I, I like, let me start with the specific and go to the general, because my, my favorite chapter of the book uh, is a cha- chapter that goes through over a dozen stories in Scripture of religious freedom conflicts. So it goes through the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1. Uh, it looks at a story from the life of Jeremiah when he was viewed as a national security threat because of his prophecy and was thrown into a well. And then an Ethiopian named ebed Melech advocated for his religious freedom. Uh, it looks at, uh, obviously, Daniel in the lion's den, but like Daniel in how he negotiated for kosher food when he was in Babylon. And as, as I go through all these script stories in scripture of religious freedom conflicts, the main takeaway from that is that there is no formula in scripture for how Christians enter into the public square. And I, I think we often want a formula. We want to kind of set up camp, you know, whether it's the Anabaptist camp or the Chuck Colson camp or the Pat Robertson camp or whoever, you know, whoever the Christian leader is, you know, we need to uh, transform the culture. We need to uh, be relevant to the culture. We need to just distance ourselves from the culture. And I think scripture calls us to different approaches in different times, different polities, uh, and in different situations. And there are times in scripture where people resist with civil disobedience. There are times when Paul invokes his legal rights to be free from a beating as a Roman citizen or his legal right to appeal to Caesar. There are times, you know, the Hebrew midwives, they didn't give a straight answer to Pharaoh when he asked them why they weren't killing the baby boys. They gave a deceptive answer. And, you know, there, there may be times when you don't need to be so in your face about your, your reason for uh, 
for your action in the public square. Uh, there are times when uh, people of God use government power. Think of Esther and Mordecai, like they were put in a position of government power and they used it to protect the Jewish people. Uh, so I, I think, you know, I don't, I can't say there's, there's this one camp, one approach to the public square, but I love the call to like get back to scripture and to look at these stories and mind these stories and be led by the Holy Spirit, really, in how we as Christians enter into the public square. That, that is helpful, and it helps me. It makes me think of a second question, which is um, when the church is, when we're talking about the church engaging in these kind of cultural moments, would, is there ever moments, maybe even practically, where you would say the church should engage something differently than it would advocate for legally? So, like, we actually, we're going to do something out of the gospel, but we're going to also advocate for something legally, and we think this should protect us, but we should move this way differently. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, I don't, I'm not sure if this would answer it, but I, I look at the book, in the book, at the case of the baker who uh, declined to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. And, you know, I think, I think Christians can reach different views on that issue. Um, and some Christians will think, like, hey, if I provide my services in celebration of the same-sex wedding... I'm celebrating something that goes against scripture and it's, it's saying something that I don't want to communicate out in the world. Um, but I could also see uh, Christians saying, we're called to love our LGBTQ neighbors and so you want a cake from me? Yes, I will gladly bake you the cake or I might even give it to you for free and just tell you that I, as a way of telling you that I love you uh, and be uh, counter, counter-Christian culture in that sense. And I would absolutely, I mean, if I would want to know the individual well and, and pray through it and talk through it with them, but I, you know, my lean is much more towards give them the cake for free, like radical acts of love and generosity in that context, not, you know, I won't bake you a cake and I will fight for my legal rights. But, you know, if, if some Christian or you know, Muslim or other person of other faith reaches that conclusion uh, and faces a choice where you know, the same-sex couple can very easily get cakes from a dozen other bakers down the street um, and the government is using its power to crush a business owner with hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines and brand them a bigot, uh, I think that's a problem. And I would defend their uh, religious freedom in that context. And I think those, those types of, you know, I, I've gotten the, the question a lot from people. I was at Wheaton College this past week, and the students were saying, like, is it ever hard to advocate for people that you disagree with religiously? And for me, I've never had a problem. I've represented Muslims, Jews, Sikhs, Santeros. That's like Santeria, where you do goat sacrifice in your garage. Um, uh, Hindus, Buddhists. And I've never, I've never had a problem representing people of other faiths, uh, but it's been much hard, harder when I'm representing fellow Christians because as a lawyer, I have a, an ethical duty to vigorously defend my clients, uh, but sometimes they handle situations in ways that I don't agree with. Uh, all right, I'd like to open it up. I have a few other ones too, but open it up in the meantime to anybody else who has a question. Yeah. 
Okay, so question is, have I worked on Native American religious freedom issues and what do Native Americans need to know about these issues and how can Native Americans and Christians advocate? So, so glad you asked. I mean, some of the most amazing and difficult cases I've worked on have, have been involved Native Americans. Very briefly, two, and I'm, I'm working on both right now. One, I represent a Native American feather dancer who's also a Christian pastor. He seeks to um, enculturate his faith within Native American traditions. And uh, federal law right now um, makes it illegal for the vast majority of Americans to possess eagle feathers or many other bird feathers. Uh, there, there are exceptions uh, for museums, scientists, zoos, and for members of federally recognized Native American tribes. Uh, background on that is, you know, there are some tribes that are federally recognized. Many others are not because it's a very, very difficult to get federal recognition. Uh, so uh, Pastor Soto was having a powwow in, down in McAllen, Texas, and a fish and wildlife agent read about it in the newspaper and thought, hey, maybe if I go to this powwow, I can find people breaking the law with feathers. So he came to the powwow uh, undercover and entered into the powwow, found Pastor Soto, said, hey, that's a nice bustle you have there. He's wearing big bustle. Uh, what, what kind of feathers are those? Eagle feathers. Pulls out his badge. I'm with the Fish and Wildlife Service. Confiscated the feathers um, and uh, imposed criminal fines. There was another guy who had picked up Feathers of doves, ducks, and Canada geese from his yard made dream catchers. He got criminally prosecuted. Um, so I had the opportunity to represent Pastor Soto. Um, his story has a mostly happy ending. We got a good court ruling and then a good settlement agreement that allows him and 400 members of his tribe to possess and use feathers. Uh, and then, but it doesn't extend to all Native Americans. So uh, we worked with him to petition the federal government to change that regulation and allow all Native Americans to possess eagle feathers, and the federal government's currently considering that request right now. Um, another case I'm working on currently is out of Oregon. Uh, members of the uh, Cascade and Klickamat tribes of the Yakima Nation. Oh, I should have mentioned Pastor Soto is part of the Lapan Apache tribe of Texas, and one of his great-great-grandfathers is a signatory of a treaty between the Lapan Apache tribe and the Republic of Texas, back when it was the Republic of Texas. Um, representing members of the Yakima Nation in Oregon, they had a sacred site on, a, on the road from Portland up to Mount Hood. Has anybody ever driven that road from, it's Highway 12 or 24, from Portland up to Mount Hood? Um, you know, that was originally a Native American trail, then it became part of the Oregon Trail, and now it's a highway. And so you had Native Americans traversing that area. There was a campground and a burial ground where they buried people who, were, uh, who died along the way. And this sacred site has been on the roadside for many years. Long story short, the government was widening the highway. They ignored the pleas of the Native Americans. They bulldozed the sacred site, destroyed the stone altar, and widened the highway. And so for the last, that was actually 2008. That's a case that's been going on for 11 years and we're trying to get the government to 
to redress that issue. So the issue of Native American land use is a huge one because Native Americans have a very different perspective than Christians and other religions on the sacredness of land. And there are a number of really bad precedents in that area of the law allowing the government to do stuff to sacred Native American lands. Uh, and then eagle feathers are another big issue. So as far as what to do, you know, I think becoming educated, um, there's a group called Native American Rights Fund that litigates for Native Americans on a variety of issues, including sometimes religious freedom. Um, but simply becoming aware and, you know, as, a, as Christians, we can lend our voice to these issues. I mean, it's so ironic that, like, the sacred site was their land to begin with, and these court ruling, the bad court rulings say, well, the government needs to be free to do what it wants to do on its own land, with no sense of the, the irony and the injustice in that. So it's an area where we as Christians can really stand up and advocate as a matter of justice. Yeah. So the question is, how do, you, how do you view the other side when you're locked, locking horns in litigation? And I think, I think it's an area that I personally need to grow in because um, I, don't, I don't think about the other side all that much. Um, I think about persuading, I think about the judges a lot like, I try to get inside their head and how I can persuade them. And then I think about the other side, like, what arguments they're going to make and, you know, strategically how to outmaneuver them. Um, but I often don't think about them as human beings or as people in need of prayer. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't think that would necessarily change the way that I litigate the cases. Um, and you know, we have a, our legal system is an adversarial system, so it, you know, it relies on two opposing sides vigorously advocating their own interests and then the judge in the middle to, to find the truth in the midst of that adversarial system. So I don't think it would, it would change like legal strategy or things like that, but it's, it's just an area to like very concretely love your enemies or, you know, they're not always like enemies, but just love your opponents, love someone who's opposing you. And I, th I think one area you do have some interaction with them, you know, phone calls, in person at hearings, emails, and, you know, always trying to strike a respectful tone is an important part of that as well. Yeah, so the question is, some, some religions have extreme practices and what are the boundaries of religious freedom and have I ever turned down cases when people were too extreme? So, what's that? <laughs> right. Yeah, so um, that's a great question and every right, constitutional right or freedom has limits. So, you know, free speech doesn't give you the freedom to engage in false advertising. Um, the right to bear arms under the Second Amendment doesn't give you a right to carry your gun onto an airplane. And similarly, religious freedom has boundaries as well. Um, and it, those boundaries generally come from the government's duty to protect other rights. So the, the easy example is like, my religion commands me to engage in child sacrifice. Uh, the government has a duty to uphold the child's right to life. 
and so it can restrict my religious practice of child sacrifice. Now, we haven't had child sacrifice cases, but we have had like withholding of life-saving med medical treatment. There are families that would deny their children truly life-saving medical treatment uh, in the name of their religious beliefs. And the, the law is, is pretty settled there that the government has a right to come in and forcibly, against the parents' will, provide life-saving treatment to the children. Um, there are many, many hard cases about boundaries. I mean, just think, like, I've done a ton of, like, land-use cases where churches are trying to expand their, or mosques or synagogues are trying to build, locate in a neighborhood, and the government doesn't want them there because, you know, it's bringing traffic to a residential neighborhood or it's not bringing enough traffic to a commercial neighborhood, uh, and there, you know, it can affect property values. So there are always, like, very difficult um, questions of, of where to draw those lines. One, one fruitful line of inquiry, though, is, like, are non-religious people allowed to do the same thing? So, like, in the land use context, you know, I, I represented a, a church that wanted to uh, use an old vacant building in a commercial district, and the city uh, near San Antonio said no, um, but it would allow uh, museums to, to use that building, it would allow movie theaters, and it would allow private clubs to use that building, but it wouldn't allow churches. Uh, so when the government's treating religious conduct worse than secular conduct, that's a pretty good indicator that it's not a proper boundary. Um, and this, this also comes up in hot-button cases. You think of like a photographer who doesn't want to photograph uh, a same-sex wedding. You know, there's a, you know, the photographer could say, I'm not going to photograph your wedding because I'm busy. There'd be no legal case there. And the photographer could say, I'm not going to photograph your wedding because you chose really bad colors and I'm trying to work on my portfolio and it's not going to help me advance my business, or they could say, I'd rather go to my kid's soccer game on that day. You know, all of that is perfectly legally permissible, but somehow if they say, uh, my deeply held religious beliefs forbid me, and I believe God will punish me if I photograph your wedding, you know, then the government's going to bring down the hammer. Um, you know, that's, that's one of the arguments in those types of cases. Uh, as far as if I've declined clients, I haven't, I haven't had too many asks by really extreme clients. I've had some, some funny asks. I had uh, someone who claimed to adhere to dudism. You guys, you guys heard of dudism? What was the movie? Big Lebowski. Big Lebowski. There's a guy called The Dude. Um, and uh, there's a, there's a made-up religion. They, they borrow a lot of the trappings of Taoism. And so this gets to an issue of, an important legal issue of sincerity that comes up in cases. Like, I've had prisoners uh, as clients. I don't imprison them. Um, I've, I've represented prisoners who, who want a, religious accommodations in prison. You know, they want a kosher diet in prison, or they want to grow a beard in prison. And there are a lot of prisoners out there who have time on their hands and will use religious claims to kind of yank the chain of the prison officials. Uh, so we do screen for sincerity. There are also uh, parody religions out there. Maybe you've heard of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, and they call themselves Pastafarians. They want to wear a pasta strainer on their head, 
in their driver's license photos. Um, and this is a, there are, there are courts that kind of like wrestle, struggle with these claims of pastafarians. Um, but, you know, the, the way to thread that needle is like religious freedom requires religious belief, an actual belief in transcendent truth that's outside of you and places demands on your conscience. And, you know, Pastafarians, they're really uh, mocking religion, which is their right. They're, they're mocking religions that require head coverings. They don't believe in transcendent truth. Um, and they're, they're taking on the trapping, they're uh, parodying religion in order to protest religious freedom. Uh, so they have free speech rights for those types of claims, but they shouldn't have religious freedom rights because there's no connection with transcendent truth. So that's one we would turn down as well. So that leads to like a, an interesting question that you've talked about quite a bit in your book, which is the difference in, like it's how to determine the right kind of discrimination in legal proceedings. And so how, it would be helpful to ask like what are some of the criteria for discerning when religious freedom trumps other kinds of rights and when it doesn't. Because you have multiple cases where you can say, like, Hobby Lobby, it does. I think about Bob Jones, and that moment is religious freedom does not trump other kinds of civil rights. So how, is, how are those issues um, discerned between? Yeah. So it, discrimination is such a loaded term today, and we all know discrimination is bad, uh, and kind of get, you know, if a church is accused of discriminating, we feel like, oh, they must have done something wrong. Um, probably one of, the, one of the favorite cases I ever worked on, uh, I represented a Lutheran church in Michigan. They ran a small Lutheran school. And one of their teachers, fourth grade teacher, uh, came down with an illness and missed uh, several months of the school year. It was unclear if she'd ever be able to come back to work. Um, so they hired a replacement teacher because the parents didn't like having multiple grades combined. And a few months later, the, the first teacher came back and said, you know, I have a doctor's note. I'm cleared to work. Give me my job back right now. And the school was kind of like, ah, like we hired a replacement teacher. We can't just fire her. Like, you know, let's see about, you know, coming back the following school year because they were already more than halfway through the school year. Uh, she said, no, uh, if you don't hire me back, you're discriminating against me based on my disability she had been di diagnosed with narcolepsy, which is like she would suddenly fall asleep. Uh, and she threatened to sue. And for a very small church and school, like this was a big deal. Like they don't have a lawyer. They're like, we've been in community with you for many years. We're trying to work with you here. You're threatening to sue. And they looked at 1 Corinthians 7, which tells believers not to sue each other in court. You know, can we work this out? And no, she... Um, pursued and suing them. So they, they let her go as a teacher. She sued um, and claimed discrimination based on her disability. And the church came back and said, we're not discriminating against you based on your disability, but you've really ruptured this relationship with us by coming in guns blazing and threatening to sue, and we don't think uh, we can keep you on as a teacher. So that's kind of how that case played out. Went all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, it was the first case I got to work on at the Supreme Court. And it was really, um, you know, it's not about this one church anymore. It's about the clash between anti-discrimination laws 
and church decisions about employment. Um, and you know, the Catholic Church, when it uh, limits the priesthood to males, is discriminating based on sex. Uh, and there's no you know, exception in federal law for the Catholic Church to have only male priests. Um, there are also a lot of cases like where churches will dismiss a pastor or other leader. You know, we don't think your sermons are good or you're not good at counseling or we're downsizing. And then the pastor will sue the church for discriminating. They'll say, you know, my sermons weren't the real reason. It's my race or it's my age. Um, so you have a lot of these cases. And the question is, like, what's, what are courts supposed to do when a religious organization is charged with discriminating? And if you, if you imagine how it would play out in front of a jury, like the, you know, the elders of the church would be like, here are all the reasons why the sermons were bad. You know, and then the pastor would tell the jury, no, here's why my sermons were really good and why it was really my age. Uh, and you have a jury kind of having to decide a religious question. Uh, so uh, when up to, there's, this, there's this doctrine in law that basically it's called the ministerial exception. And when it's, it comes to a religious organization choosing its leaders, uh, they have free reign to choose their leaders without regard to anti-discrimination laws. And the question in our Supreme Court case was, does a fourth grade teacher at a Lutheran school count as a leader? Uh, and she was leading students in prayer every day, uh, teaching them religion along with other subjects, you know, helped plan the all-school chapel service. And you know, bottom line, the Supreme Court ruled nine to zero and said she could not sue the church for discrimination. Uh, so that's a, that's a long-winded answer, like, but it's a clear example of where, at least as a legal matter, a church, a religious organization can't be sued for discrimination. Uh, the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, Johnny mentioned the Bob Jones case. This is Bob Jones University back in the late 70s. Um, it's a Christian university. It had a ban on interracial dating and interracial marriage. And uh, the IRS stripped Bob Jones University of its tax-exempt status. It said, your, your racism is against public policy, so you can't have a tax exemption anymore. Bob Jones took that case all the way to the Supreme Court, saying this is a violation of our religious freedom. And the Supreme Court ruled against Bob Jones and said, we have a tragic history of race discrimination in this country, uh, particularly in higher education, and the government has an overriding interest in eradicating race discrimination uh, in education, and so religious freedom has to take a back seat there. Uh, and I think uh, that's, that's the right outcome. Uh, the, the issue today, though, is a lot of um, folks on the pro-LGBT side of the, of the ledger are trying to use that Bob Jones case and draw an analogy and say, like, just like religious organizations can't discriminate based on race, they also can't discriminate based on sexual orientation or gender identity, and the government can therefore uh, punish them uh, for discriminating. So, like Wheaton College, my alma mater, has a, is a Christian college, has a code of conduct, says students and faculty can't enter into sexual relationships outside of man-woman marriage. <coughs> and the question would be, could, could Wheaton be stripped of its taxism status? Uh, or uh, there was a, the American Psych Psychology Association threatened to revoke Wheaton's accreditation for its psychology program because it was discriminating based on sexual orientation. Uh, so in, in the book, I, I go into 
why this analogy between, why analogizing traditional Christian beliefs about sexuality um, to racist beliefs uh, fails as a matter of law and as a matter of principle. And the, the basic argument is uh, race is very different uh, historically and legally because of our tragic history of slavery based on race, civil war based on race, many years of government-imposed segregation based on race, uh, and that led to African Americans being systematically deprived of the opportunity for full participation in the economic, political, and social life of our nation. And so because of that, the government's given these powerful tools to eradicate racism across a variety of areas, and religious freedom has to take a back seat to that. But it, when it comes to sexual orientation, you know, the LGBT community has suffered not in the same way as African Americans. They haven't faced the same systematic barriers to participation in the life of the community. The government hasn't been given the same tools to eradicate uh, sexual orientation discrimination as it has race discrimination. And you even see this like in the Supreme Court itself when the court in a case called Loving versus Virginia struck down state bans on interracial marriage. It said that those bans were based on invidious relics of white supremacy and condemn the beliefs underlying those bans. Uh, in the Obergefell decision, when the court recognized same-sex marriage, it did the opposite. It went out of its way to say that the beliefs underlying these traditional marriage laws are based on decent and honorable premises held by people in good faith for many generations, and they're entitled to respect. Um, so uh, the Supreme Court has recognized the difference. Uh, the, the law has repeatedly recognized the difference. Uh, so I don't think... Uh, the law will go so far as to treat traditional Christian views on sexuality as racist bigotry, uh, but that's what uh, some groups are pushing for, and I think that will be a source of conflict in the years to come. Great question. So this came up actually back in the 60s during the Vietnam War with conscientious objection to military service, and there's a, a statute that allowed those who were conscientiously opposed to military service for religious reasons to be exempt from the draft and from military service. And then you had a number of people who uh, sought conscientious objector status even though they didn't hold traditional religious beliefs. They would call themselves humanists or uh, just for ethical reasons believed that all war was wrong. And so uh, what the Supreme Court ruled, a pair of cases called Walsh and Seeger, uh, it basically interpreted that statute on religion to cover uh, any belief that occupies in the place of the believer a place similar to an orthodox belief in God. So you don't actually have to believe in a deity. Uh, it doesn't have to be a traditional set of religious beliefs, uh, but it does have to have some sort of belief in, tra in, in transcendence, something outside of yourself that you are bound by. Uh, and so that's how I think most courts would draw the line today. Uh, they, and they don't require you to follow, you know, a well-known religion, but they do require uh, that connection to the transcendent. Yeah, so the question was my thoughts on a speech by Attorney General Barr a few weeks ago. Um, I thought it was, a, it was a good speech on the whole. It, it has kind of a, a, a shrill... It, you, you know, if you listen to it, it, it could have sort of a shrill tone. Like, so his speech was basically, uh, 
he gave it at Notre Dame, I think, uh, talking about attacks on religious freedom. And in his view, there's a systematic attack kind of led by secularism to take away religious freedom and to punish traditional religious beliefs. And he was kind of articulating um, philosophical arguments for why religious freedom is a good thing. I thought there were a lot of good aspects of the speech. And I think it's important to avoid kind of sky is falling rhetoric. Um, you know, I don't think, I don't, we don't want to like overstate what we're facing. And I think one way, one area I might part ways with Attorney General Barr, he kind of portrayed like, it's like secularism against religion. And I, I hear that a lot, like uh, religious people talking about like secularism, they're, they're against religion. But as I, as I see it and describe it in the book, I don't think our, our culture is like hostile to religion per se. I think it's increasingly drawing a line between what it views as good religion and bad religion. Like good religion is private, kind of stays within the four walls of the home and the church. Uh, it's very tolerant, very accepting of other religious systems, doesn't claim absolute truth. Uh, it's, it's not evangelistic. You know, it's not going out there and trying to convert people. And it's also not condemning people uh, very much on moral grounds, particularly on sex and abortion uh, and those traditional beliefs. Bad religion uh, is very public. It's not confined to the four walls of the home or church. It influences your business and your ministry. Uh, it's evangelistic. It's out there trying to convert people. It firmly believes in absolute truth, and it believes in absolute, uh, in moral absolutes, and adheres to traditional beliefs about uh, life and sexuality. I think that's that brand of religion is increasingly viewed as a threat to a lot of the values of of, sec, of modern culture, and and those sets of beliefs are going to increasingly face religious freedom conflicts in the years to come. Yeah. So question, do I, have I had clients where I didn't share their beliefs but had an opportunity to make an impact or share my faith? And the main, the main story that comes to mind, uh, and the impact actually went both ways, there's a, a Muslim community in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, uh, that was outgrowing its facility. They were, you know, services were spilling out into the parking lot, no room for kids' ministry. So they did what many churches do. They bought a piece of property on the outskirts of Murfreesboro and planned to build a new Islamic center. Um, they put up a sign that said, you know, future home of the Islamic center of Murfreesboro. You know, that was spray painted, not welcome. Uh, construction equipment at the site was set on fire with an arson attack. There were protests often led by uh, self-proclaimed Christians uh, opposing the, the building of this mosque. Uh, at one point, they got a, a phone call, a phone message on September 5th, expletive-ridden phone call saying a bomb was going to be planted in their uh, sanctuary on September 11th, so they canceled services, and the, the caller was eventually uh, convicted of a felony. And eventually, uh, a lot of Christians and others filed a lawsuit against the county because it had, had approved the mosque, and tried to stop them from uh, occupying the mosque. And they got a court ruling stopping them from, from entering their mosque. Um, I, I filed a lawsuit on their behalf uh, shortly before the start of Ramadan. 
uh, trying to get an emergency order allowing them to get a certificate of occupancy so they could get in in time, in time for Ramadan. Um, got to fly out to Tennessee, meet with the imam, and you know, share meals together, talk together. And I was, I was amazed at his posture in the midst of this conflict. I mean, he was facing far more hostility than Christians face in the midst of these conflicts. But he was unfailingly cheerful, unfailingly gracious and loving, even to the self-proclaimed Christians who were protesting. He also just repeatedly declared his confidence in the American legal system. Like, I'm, I trust America. You know, he's, he's from Egypt, but he's like, I trust America. We have religious freedom here. I trust the court will do the right thing. You know, none of the gloom and doom. Uh, so he was a, a witness to me in that sense. Uh, but we've also, you know, subsequently maintained our friendship, had multiple meals together. And he's, he's always like, Luke, I don't understand the, this doctrine of the Trinity. Like, how can, how can God have a son? You know, so I, I get to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity and how I don't understand it either. But, <laughs> you know, uh, but like God, you know, doesn't it make sense that God would be beyond our understanding and, um, you know, talk about faith versus works and like the need for, you know, that we can't earn our salvation. So we've had some in-depth theological conversations, you know, it's not like he's, he's converted, but it's been a great opportunity to love a neighbor and, and bear witness to Christ. And I think that's, you know, that's one more reason why, you know, the, there, there are churches that protested the mosque. There are other churches that uh, stood up in their support. You know, we had a letter signed by hundreds of leaders of various Christian denominations, um, and other churches have reached out and said, hey, let's do a joint dinner together. And those are things that, you know, Missio can do, other churches can do to, to reach out to the Muslim community and say, hey, we don't hate you, we love you, we are your neighbors, tell us more. And, uh, and especially when these conflicts pop up, there's a great opportunity for Christians to stand up for people of other faiths. Yeah. So questions about public accommodations laws. These are, these are laws that, you know, traditionally they applied to things like trains and buses and hotels, like places where you would stay. And during segregation, there were many of those institutions that were closed to African-Americans. And so uh, the Civil Rights Act 1964 was kind of, is kind of the quintessential public accommodations law. And it says, if you operate a place of public accommodation, you can't discriminate on various bases, race being number one, um, but national origin, sex, religion, and other, other grounds. Um, some, some states have extended those laws. They've, they've definitely broadened the definition of a public accommodation, so almost anything, anything that's open to the public, you know, churches usually aren't, but like a daycare, a camp, counseling services, like anything can be labeled a public accommodation. Uh, and then some jurisdictions have added to the grounds on which you can't discriminate. Uh, sexual orientation, gender identity being one. D.C., my old hometown, added uh, political affiliation, so you can't discriminate against Democrats or Republicans. They added personal appearance. You can't turn someone away because you don't ha like how they look. So these laws have expanded. Here in Utah, um, the law, it's, it's a pretty relatively narrow definition of public accommodation, and it also has not added 
sexual orientation or gender identity. Uh, it does have some of the more traditional grounds. And so that, you know, that means um, the downside of that would be like, you know, in theory, a place like Walmart or uh, a restaurant could turn away somebody because of their sexual orientation. Uh, to my knowledge, that hasn't happened in Utah. Um, the upside is you don't have those uh, hot-button conflicts, you know, wedding vendors or, or things like that, or, um, you know, churches, if they rent out their space. You know, if, if somebody wanted to rent one of our facilities for a same-sex wedding, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if we would, you know, necessarily oppose that. We might, you know, take the act of radical love and, like, we'll give it to you for free, um, but other churches that might have a problem with that, you know, if, if that was the law in the books, they could face those sorts of conflicts as well. Um, but thank you for your kind words about the book, and it really was my, my effort. It's not like a, there's no, you won't find any legalese. One of my great passions in life is to talk about legal issues without legalese, like in a clear way that's accessible to everybody. And I think, you know, you may know in your life, you may know some pilgrims, they may watch Fox News all the time and get really angry if a nativity scene is taken down. Um, this is a great book to give them as a Christmas present. Um, and you may, you may know some martyrs who, are, who think, you know, who would make fun of the pilgrims watching Fox News and would say there are no religious freedom conflicts. Um, and it's a good book to give them for a Christmas present as well. Uh, so got it over here for cheaper than you can find it on Amazon, and, um, Barnes and Noble, and uh, actually I donated them to Missio, so all the proceeds go to Missio. I'm not lining my pockets, and so buy some Christmas presents, get your Christmas presents, Christmas shopping done early. But thank you guys for coming out. It's, it's an encouragement to me uh, to see you guys. So thanks.